Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Alan Saunders. Alan is the head teacher of St Joseph's Catholic Primary School in Warrington, Cheshire. Alan, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme today. Morning, pleasure. It's a real pleasure having you join us as well, Alan. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership and leadership I feel anyway is something that's really being put to the test probably more so than ever at the moment with the emergence of the COVID-19 situation of course this year and the need for leaders of businesses organizations institutions governments to feel their way through what is ultimately uncharted territory for us all so for somebody working within primary education such as yourself how has it been look trying to navigate these last few weeks and months because I can imagine that they have thrown up a few real challenges for you. Yeah, yeah they have. Um, I, I'd agree. It is, it is all about challenges and and because it's a new thing, because it's something that is um, uncharted, you know, it's obviously been difficult for many, many people, um, obviously from the top down, but the way that we're trying to do things is to do it right. I mean, I, I've been a head teacher for 12 years now, um, 12 years here at St. Joseph's. And I remember right at the beginning, um, I read somewhere, I remember saying it, and I, I often refer to this when I've talked to other people, is management is about doing things right. Leadership is about doing the right thing. And um, throughout COVID, throughout our, our involvement in it, we've been trying to do just that, trying to, to set up systems, trying to put things in place whereby we can still be school, we can still be ourselves for our community. Um, the leadership itself is very much about doing. You know, it, it's the right thing to do, and I base all of my all of my work, all my my principles, really, are about relationships. It's our relationships in school with our staff, all staff. I mean, um, it's our relationship with the children that they know they are loved by us at St Joseph's, and we want the very, very best for them. And it's our relationships with the with the families, um, that our families trust us. Our families know that. Um, everything we do is about them and we'll do our best. And we put our hands up when we don't get it right and sometimes we say we're not sure about this but um, we do put our hands up and I think people have trusted us over the years for that and I think the proof's in the pudding there people like coming to St. Joseph's. And um, the fact that you've had to sort of deal with crisis management and adapting to a new reality over the uh, the past few months, which has really affected us all, of course, that lack of social interaction as well as the classroom space has really been lost during this time. Is there anything yeah. that you would say that you've learned from this experience of adapting to this sort of new normal? Yeah, um, Warrington as a local authority um, is very good. It's very much a collegiality uh, principle that goes on. People work very closely together and right from the start, there are a lot of conversations between heads and between local authority officers. There aren't many of them due to finances, but um, we work very, very well together. And we, we try to come up with a plan, that more and more a set of principles, really, that um, as a whole school community, schools community, um, it would work. So we waited on that. We, we got to work straight away ourselves. I mean, before we actually went into lockdown, my staff were looking at ways that we could support children with work at home, so we used Google Classroom um, to, to try and provide work for the children. But I think right from the beginning, one of the key things that helped in all of this was we decided that each week, 
my teachers would, to the best of their ability, it wasn't always possible, but they would ring every family and try and talk to each child just to say hello. And obviously, some of those phone calls, you're going to get a child saying, hi, yeah, and nothing else. Mm. But the relationship is so important. And we've learned over these last three and a half months that um, you know, families have been very, very appreciative of that. And that relationship has really developed lots of one-to-one conversations. Um, as I said, sometimes it's quite difficult to you know, make sure you speak to everybody, but we've tried to do that every every week, every teacher ringing each family in, the, in their group. And then with maybe some of our vulnerable children, you know, I'll make some of those phone calls too. Um, there's lots of conversations that are taking place between members, taking place between members of staff and myself, you know, about individual children. Are they okay? You know, anything we, we need to know, anything we can say to support them in that. Obviously, you have the practical things. Um, you know, people having access to devices so they can work with, or um, you know, sometimes we have to print some materials off. Sometimes we made the odd trip round in the car to drop drop a few things off. Um, you know, with the usual social distancing thing, but that that was quite difficult. And then trying to work out a, a rotor of how we could support children of key workers, um, trying to support families as best we could, because everybody's in this difficult situation. Everybody's in it, and you know, I was very much aware, and my staff were very much aware that we are. You know, we're getting paid. You know, we're we're on our salary. So we've been working throughout, including the holidays, including the bank holidays. Um, we worked throughout, and we wanted to. Um, but we know there are some people experiencing severe hardship. So we want to do our best to make sure the children, the children are not missing out. Our children have been educated throughout. Yes, there are difficulties. Um, it's not the same as being in class with your teacher, but um, our children have not missed out on their learning. Um, I think that's the case in most schools, actually. And I suppose it's been a case as well of managing things from a mental health perspective, of course, because that, as I say, common classroom space has been lost during this time. Pupils haven't been able to see each other. They've been confined to the home. Learning has had to be uh, delivered remotely. But also you'll have a number of staff members as well who are probably feeling isolated in exactly the same way. So how has it been sort of managing it from that perspective? Because I suppose as the uh, the head teacher, people are essentially looking to you to provide the reassurances that they need amid all of the worry. Yeah, you've got to first of all remember that every every person is different. Every person will have their own set of anxieties, worries, beliefs, um, different ways that they cope in, um, and different situations at home as well. Um, and that has to be you have to take that into consideration when you're talking with people. I, for one, have tried not not so much recently because more and more staff are back in school, but um, I've tried myself to make phone calls to members of staff just to say hello, just to say hi. Um, just to see how they're getting on. Not not probing too much, but just saying hello so there's a voice there. And no other staff have done that as well with each other. Mental health is so important, mental, mental well-being. Um, and isolation harms that. Um, with the children, not only have we been setting work for them to do, but we've also you know, had the fun things as well. We've been sending videos home of, of the teachers reading, bit of fun things as well. We've been sort of singing. All the staff did a... Um, a, a song together, all in this together, quite cheesy, but it worked. And you know, families enjoyed that. The children themselves have been involved in um, projects together, so there was a, a sense of togetherness. Even though we're not physically together, they were they were using video to do that. It was, it was a great idea. So the mental health of the children is so so important, and of the teachers, and not just the teachers, all my staff, all my you know, my volunteer ladies, my office staff. My, you know, every member of our staff and the government. So we feel that we are one school community. 
separated physically, you know, for the most part, but very much united. And I, I actually feel in some ways we've grown closer together as a, as a school community. That's just a feeling, but I, I do sense that from emails and conversations I have with various people when I, I was going to say bump into them in the street, but you don't bump into them, but you, you know, you do see people and chat to them. It's giving people time. That's the thing. You know, when this idea of mental health and well-being, um, what I think we do is, and this comes from my faith as well, I'm a practicing Catholic, mm. um, it's about accompaniment. It's about accompaniment. Now, accompaniment comes from you know, the verb, you know, companion and breaking bread, but sharing life together. So it's giving people time. It isn't always what you say, it's actually just giving people time. But sometimes it can be trivial conversations, but right underneath that is the development of a relationship, whether that's with your chair of government or with, you know, um, you know your maintenance officer or, or a child in year two. It's, it's about talking and listening and just spending time with people. It certainly is. I think um, that's absolutely right. And as we sort of move into the uh, the new normal and adjust to the challenges that that's uh, going to bring, do you think that any features of the lockdown period for the education sector specifically could end up being a permanent part of the way that the industry operates? So maybe there will be a little bit more of that online provision in future. Yeah, um, there's been talk about that. Obviously, you know, needs must. <laughs> Things happen and, and you have to respond to that. So all of a sudden, you know, schools across the country have become better and better at, you know, digital learning. Of course, for years now, I mean, I've been teaching, was it 22 years? I've been a teacher, 21, 22 years. In one of my placements, I think we had one computer in the classroom. Now, 20-odd years later, we've got all sorts of devices that are just so normal to us, aren't we? Just think of your mobile phone. Um, but it shouldn't just be an add-on. The use of technology is, is something that we really have to develop. The last couple of days, I've been involved in... Um, there's a, a group called EdTech. Um, there's a festival taking place, an online festival. It wasn't originally planned as an online thing, but EdTech is a, apparently there's 1,300 people from across the world is listening in and joining in in this sort of online conference um, with various sessions and workshops. So I yesterday I spent a bit of time joining in and listening to some of these speakers. And for us, when we come back in September, hopefully, um, it can't just be we've done a little bit of online learning. Um, we have to see if we can blend that more into the way the children learn as it is. I know in, in high schools, in secondary schools, a lot more of that goes on with the way children learn. So why not in, in primaries as well? Why not use that tool in a far bigger way? You know, how can we make it more, not just a matter of using apps, so it's not just, you know, we've got a bit of IT, we'll use that, we've got an app, a good app for this. But how can we make it more normal um, to learn together in such a way? Perhaps share learning across classrooms digitally more with other schools digitally mm. um, and I know lots of people I mean we're you know, there's people really way ahead on that in lots of places around the country we're nowhere on that path well we are on the path but we're early on that path um, and I think that's the way forward that's something we're, we're looking into now how we can develop that more and more and I've got people on my team who are keen <laughs> saying mm. that they're willing because they want the best for the children so they're saying well, let's have a go let's take some risks let's try we're in a good position you know, Ofsted came in January, which seems like four or five years ago now. <laughs> you know, Ofsted came in January. They said we were a good school. We've got some great practice going on. Um, our RE inspection was the year before, and that was outstanding. We're in a good position to try and say, how can we make this better for our children? How can we give them a much better experience? Our school motto is learning, growing, belonging, happy 
together in God's family. And that, that tool of IT is a great way of developing the, the, the school community and the individual better and better for the, for the common good. Certainly seems it. And um, as we think about sort of that route forward in just in a little bit more detail, of course, there's been a great debate about how clear guidelines have been for schools to uh, reopen. They were deemed impractical, um, of course, in the last couple of months, which is why the education sector is now looking to sort of restart in earnest from September. Are you satisfied now that there is a clear and practical route forward in that sense? Um, I, I found it difficult, like like many, many other head teachers, I found it really difficult because there's been like a wave of information and, and guidance and directions coming at us. Each day there's something new to read. And there have been contradictions. And, and I do have feelings about that, that, you know, I mean, jokingly, it's as if people in school have a different gene than the rest of the population. You know, that, you know I mean, social distancing in school with children, is a, you know, there's no chance. Children are always touching each other, always very close to each other. Um, I, there have been question marks about the directions that we've been given and, and the delay in giving those, that guidance, that direction. Um, I know it's a new thing for everybody, but I feel that could have been a lot better. Um, when the, the, the instructions come out, as they did, was it last, was it last Friday? I think it was now, um, for you know coming back in September. Okay, that gave us a new way to go. Again, I don't. I don't do everything on my own. I do, I'm part of the team. I work closely with the team. So we gathered together as a team and said, "Right, this is what we've been asked to do. Let's see how we can make that work." Um, again, that idea of collegiality. You know, what what are we looking at? And my staff are very good. They're they're on they're on the ground. They're working with the children, with people. Um, they come and tell me. They say, "Look, what do you think about this? Why don't we do it this way? Would that be a better way?" So within the guidelines that we've been given, that's what we're doing. So. Um, yeah, I, I think it becomes clearer. It has become clearer as time's gone on. And as I said, Warrington itself, as a local authority, we're, we're very good at talking with each other. So daily, there's emails between either you know, the head teachers across the bar or with the local head, you know, the local Catholic schools, and also with the archdiocese as well. With the archdiocese of Liverpool, there's lots of good work between um, the, the people in the diocese working together, saying what is the best thing for us. How can we do the best for our families? Obviously, a context because we are St. Joseph's in Wellington, our context, but the principles, the guidance that we've been given from government and the support we've been given from both the diocese and from the local authority. Um, so, yeah, it, it's become clearer. Yeah. That's really positive, Alan. So, looking now at what the new normal is really going to bring for yourself and for St. Joseph's Catholic Primary School in particular, what do you see on the horizon over the course of the next year and what do you really hope to achieve as we sort of embrace these new challenges? Well, people talk about, um, you know, a lost, you know, lost learning. Um, I'm not entirely sure what that really means. I mean, we, every day in class, teachers figure out what children need to learn. You know, they haven't got this. What do we need to do and help them to learn that? That's what goes on. That's what teaching is about. It's craft. Um, and so in these last three and a half months with children not being in school, what have they missed out on? I'm not sure. They've, they've learned an awful lot. You know, they've learned a lot about being at home with their families and, and about resilience and learning new things and, and all the great stuff that's been available, you know, um, on, on the TV and on, you know, on, IT, on, on the web things that have been available for them and that whole relationship building with their with their families at home, with their their parents, their you know, brothers and sisters, etc. That's all been available for them. So when they come back, we talk of a, a catch-up curriculum. We don't know what that's going to look like yet. I know with our, for example, our maths, we kept that going throughout. 
Now, how the children have engaged in that is not the same as what would happen in school. So when we come back, we'll be able to see you know, where children need that extra bit of a, not a boost, but an extra support on that. But we'll have to wait and see and see what that looks like. Um, and we'll try our best and support the children as best we can with that. We're, you know, we're limited, just like many schools, we're limited with the resources we've got. Um, which teachers can do this, which teaching assistants, we don't have many teaching assistants at all, but how we can support children who may have, may not have picked up something. Um, but I'm sure that'll come. I'm sure that'll come. And, and we have to um, have patience with each other and find the best way forward. And again, we'll get support from each other as well across schools, you know, people finding out ways of doing things better. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not convinced they'll have lost loads of, loads of learning. And it's also this, this idea that we have, and I sometimes pick up that we have what, what's known as, what they call it, a deficit model, that children just learn by you. You give them more and more information or a new skill and they just keep learning. So in these last three and a half months, they haven't had that. They, they haven't had that filling up. Well, that's not my view of education. I'm not sure it's actually, I don't think it's real, a deficit model. Um, we learn different things in different ways. And if you want to use the word catch-up, which is the phrase catch-up, I don't like that, but if you want to use it, we will catch-up. We will catch-up. Mm. It certainly seems like there's some real sort of ambition there to sort of get back on the uh, the right path, Alan, for sure. And um, I think it would be fantastic, just given how informative it's been discussing some of these issues with you today, just to catch up again and see just how things are getting on over the next few months and just assess how the school is adapting to bringing back um, the majority of its pupils and adjusting to the, uh, the new norm. Yep, yep. I think, um, I think we, we'll, you know, obviously we'll be back in September and we'll be working out how best to do that with the bubbles that we, you know, that we have to create. Um, obviously making sure that as best to our ability, you know, um, that the children are safe and they are happy. So that there's a physical security there, but there's also emotional, um, you know, the well-being, the whole well-being, physical and emotional. Um, and then you know, we get them all back, we, we try and help them to learn. I think the, the first thing we'll be doing is about that emotional security. The mm. best will follow. Exactly. The physical, the physical and emotional well-being of uh, the pupils is absolutely paramount. I mean, uh, this instance, that's absolutely right. And, um, I'm really looking forward to uh, catching up and seeing how things um, are panning out in that respect and assessing just how they are coping with learning in what is going to be a sort of a newer environment for them. Because it's important to remember that it's not just changing circumstances for just, of course, teachers but also pupils as well. They're going to have to adjust to um, learning in a new socially distanced environment. So that's also something that we can't forget about going forward. Yeah, yeah. We, well, if you think about um, the older ones, God love them, because our year sixes who are leaving us, well, they've left, really. I mean, we've got some back in school now, but for some of those children, they know they've left St. Joseph, which is a sad thing, because normally mm. transition, when children are leaving the, the primary school, it happens over a period of time. It's not just events, although we have some great events, but there is a feeling that they get as well. We were fortunate on the, on the last day in school, we knew it was going to be our last day on the 20th of March. Um, our year six children stood on the playground, which is actually quite a regular practice for our children to, to be on the play, you know, dancing and singing. Our year six stood on the playground and sang, sang a song for whatever parents turned up just before school. And it was lovely. So, you know, that well, was really nice to see that. But, you know, yeah, you feel for those year, year six children. We, we have said that in the autumn, when it's right, when it's okay, um, 
we'll bring back them, well, the junior sevens then, but we'll bring them back and we'll have a little barbecue that we normally do each year as a, as a leader thing for our, for our children. Um, they're still our, they're still our children, you know. Um, we've got good relationships with the high schools as well, St. Gregory's as well, local Catholic high school, um, where most of our children go. We've got good relationships with the schools around, so we'll make it work, we'll make it work for them. You, you feel for the for those children who have the big transitions going on. Mm. I mean, they're not ours, but I feel most of us are the year 10s and the But yeah, it's for every child moving forward, um, we keep them at the centre. I mean, the phrase that we use in Catholic education is Christ at the centre, children at the heart, and that's very, very true. Mm. True across the whole church. It's been a real pleasure, I have to say, um, Alan, discussing uh, these issues with you today. And um, until we do speak again um, in future and have you join us on the programme once again, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on because we're certainly not quite out of the woods with the COVID-19 situation yet and there are still a great many variables as well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you very much. That was Alan Saunders speaking, head teacher of St. Joseph's Catholic Primary School in Warrington. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham, United and Stoke City, but he remains most notable for being the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup competition after his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff and all of that is of course coming up next. Uh, We're now joined uh, though by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, Thank you very much for coming on today. uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex, first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, yeah. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and a manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over 15 years, I guess. 
he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you just think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood. And of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that, that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he, how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, uh, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Al Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that, but obviously... Uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about South Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand. Whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you, it can have a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict. But at times, you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people 
and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could... Uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing, and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think in Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. so mm. I, I had an impact of thinking I. At that stage, I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think Mm. I was just happy to be you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't. You're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really. Looking back out, mm. so I never really felt. People talk about pressure a lot, and it's there. And people, players talk about. People talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out. The squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that I'll show. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were a very 
I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, The other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, "Oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch." So that—I've uh, had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that, and saying, "Yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, but just had a, look, had a glance round, you know." Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Lines, Jersey or Jersey, two or three years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely, but I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then, but we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want, you want, you've got time, I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on, go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a. a at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm-hmm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but no, then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well, so it did... Uh, um, and again, if you, put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened. When you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by by quick one way or the other? people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of the uh, bands of, of West Ham and uh, Stoke. 
and of course into England fans who um, I, I think probably yeah, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, uh, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think. Some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's have a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example because Klopp's only done this over a period of time, in a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone, how they, they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen, we've seen, we've probably ever seen and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, well, the, the answer, straightforward answer is yes. Um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think 
that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate, and I wouldn't pick any one player out. I think looking at that, so many, yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody, and I've been going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard-nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers. We, we still got on, our wives got on all together all those years later. It didn't just finish after 66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. We have some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, the 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 whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is the word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes uh, together, everyone achieves more. And that, that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single mind and single mind and dedication dedication to the job um, thinking about that 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 role that job in leadership all the time it's a huge part of your life but it, you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level you may you know have a, have a couple of weeks holiday but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm I'm sure there's not uh, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements. And it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over the over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.